Tonight we're back in our study, Why a Baptist. In it, in our study, uh, we are going to look at, or we are looking at what a Baptist is, uh, what it means if somebody says, hey, I am a Baptist, and we have the goal in all of that to determine, is it important, uh, does it matter? Uh, I think today, I said it last week, I think today we assume a lot of things. I think when you talk to folks and they say, this is what I am uh, whatever denomination they are, I think we assume a lot of things. I think uh, sometimes a lot of our information is based upon tradition and maybe even a lot of our practice is based upon misinformation. And so our goal in this study is to look and to see and ultimately to understand what it means that we are a Baptist church. Now, I said this last week. I think uh, this is important. I don't know that some uh, folks think it's important. I believe it's important because we are in a day and a time when people say, well, we are all the same. And you hear folks say that or people say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe uh, as long as you believe something. And I hear that all the time or, hey, you know, I'm glad you're going somewhere. It doesn't matter where you're going as long as you uh, are going somewhere. And I think that's the general uh, idea today. And so I'm excited uh, about this study. I'm excited for us to go through it together, and I'm especially excited for our young people uh, to learn these things at an early age, what it means uh, that we are a Baptist church. Uh, for review, last week we started, and the foundation was, our, our starting point was uh, stating and establishing uh, what is our goal. And that's where we started. I think that is a a foundational thing, what is our goal? We saw last week our goal is to be New Testament followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, our goal is not to be a Baptist. Uh, our goal is not to be any denomination, but it is to be people who follow Christ exactly as prescribed in uh, the New Testament, in God's Word. That is our goal. So understand, that's where we start. Uh, our goal is not to be a Baptist, it's not to, to come and understand Baptist doctrine, it is to be a New Testament follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, we need to keep reminding each other of that, uh, not only in this study, but as we go through life, we need to remind ourselves, hey, my goal is to be a biblical New Testament follower of Jesus Christ. Second last week, we asked the question, what is doctrine? Uh, we hear a lot of talk about doctrine. People uh, talk about doctrine. Uh, sometimes I've noticed recently there is pushback against doctrine. Folks will say, hey, I'm not worried about doctrine. I just want to follow uh, Jesus. And so there's some pushback against doctrine. And so the question was, what is uh, doctrine? We saw last week doctrine, very simply, it means teaching. That is all that it means. It means teaching. And so we said last week, if our goal is to be a New Testament follower of Jesus Christ, then we need to seek out and we need to embrace and we need to stand on uh, the New Testament biblical doctrine alone, New Testament biblical teaching alone. And so again, we're not looking for Baptist doctrine. We're not trying to follow Baptist doctrine or any other kind of doctrine outside of biblical doctrine. So our question over and over is going to be, what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible say? And our goal is to have correct teaching according to the Word of God. Then third last week, 
Uh, we ask the question, should we separate or group up to serve Christ and to worship Christ as local churches based on matters of doctrine? And that seems like kind of a harsh thing. Maybe it seems like a strange thing. But should we actually group up, uh, come together to worship Christ, to serve Christ, and to form local churches based upon matters of doctrine? Well, if you remember we saw last week, the answer was really that is the only valid reason that we should. And, and there's no other reason. Your skin color, your wealth, your education, your preferences, your age, none of that should matter. But correct doctrine, biblical doctrine, should be the one thing that unifies us. We're going to see that over and over in this study. The one thing that should bring us together, the one thing that should unify us is biblical doctrine. Now, as unpopular as it sounds, also, it should be the one thing that would divide us. And what I mean by that is if we hold different views of the Trinity or different views of salvation or different views of the nature of Christ or any other important piece of God's truth, then we should separate because of those deviations in what we understand as truth. And so we unify in the truth and we also separate according to the truth. And so the question, the answer was last week, yes, we should group up based upon matters of doctrine. All right, that catches us up with tonight, where we start back tonight. Tonight, we're going to keep uh, moving along. Really, we're laying the groundwork for some other things that are going to come a little bit later. So we're going to keep moving along in our study tonight. Tonight, our first issue, our first question is, and really it needs to just be said, and I think it's something sometimes we're timid about, uh, but it really just needs to be said. What about groups who believe differently? What about churches who believe differently? What about differences? And what about those who have studied God's Word and they have come to different conclusions? And let me just go ahead and answer the real question that people ask. If they believe differently, are they saved? And I'll just, I'll just make it as plain as I can. Folks will say, are Catholics saved? Or are members of the Church of Christ saved? Or are Lutherans saved? Or are Methodists saved? Are they saved? And so folks will say, well, they have a different understanding. They have a different church. And so sometimes folks will say, are they saved? Now here, I want you to listen very carefully. I want you to hear me in this. Listen very carefully. There is only one gospel. There's only one gospel, and it's not a Baptist, it's not a Baptist gospel. Now, there is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to be saved. And if those people, if any person, if they have embraced the truth of the biblical gospel, if they see Jesus as the Son of God, if they see him as the Christ, as the Savior for sinners, and if they have trusted in his finished work on the cross of Calvary alone, not with something else, for their salvation, and if they, in that understanding, if they have repented of their sin and turned to Jesus as their Lord, by faith and in faith, they are saved. And so listen, there's only one gospel, and there's only one way to be saved. 
And if any person has trusted the truth of Jesus presented in the biblical gospel, they are saved. Now, let me say this. Some of those folks in line with the teachings of those churches, and so you know what? Those, teach, those churches teach those things, and they have walked out that conclusion. Some of those folks are saved in line with the teaching of those churches, and some of them in spite of the teaching of those churches. Some of those folks, those churches are not teaching the biblical gospel, but there's folks in those churches that have heard it. Maybe they've read God's word, and they are saved, but maybe it's in spite of the teaching of their church. If they understand and embrace the biblical gospel, they are saved. Now, sometimes this gets put on me, and so I want to go ahead and clear it up right here. So are Baptists the only one that get it right? I tell you, I'm a Baptist. I'm glad to be a Baptist. So some folks put that on me. Are Baptists the only ones that get it right? Are Baptists going to be the only ones who are in heaven? Are Baptists the only ones who are saved? I want you to get this. Here's good advice in a whole lot of arenas. Be leery of any person in any setting who believe they are always right. Be leery of any person in any setting who believe they are the only one uh, who is right. Some of your men are looking at your wives going, see, that includes you. That was a cheap shot. So that's our first point tonight. Now, the second point is this, all right? Now, this is something that is relevant, something we see floating around in this age. How do we live in an age, in a day of ecumenicalism? How do we live today uh, in the day of ecumenicalism? What are we to do about that, in that, considering that? What is our response in a day of ecumenicalism? Let me explain this to you. Ecumenicalism, you may be wondering, what in the world is that? It is a movement. It's really a movement of the last 100 years. Uh, it's really a movement that has picked up speed in the last 50 years and uh, the last 20 years. It is a movement toward worldwide Christian unity. Uh, ecumenicalism, it is the belief that all churches should come together. They should unite, uh, setting aside their doctrinal beliefs that might separate them from other groups. And these folks say, you know what? Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. We ought to be unified as, as a people. And so they believe we ought to set aside these doctrinal differences to come together as the church. It's sometimes called interdenominationalism. Its motto goes something like this. What unites us is greater than what divides us. And they, oh, we ought to just get together what unites us, it is greater than the things that divide us. Uh, some of the results of that, the World Council of Churches, uh, other groups that are, that are similar to that. I need to say, and it's, it's really a, a, a growing thing in the last 20 years, uh, there is a new addition to the ecumenical movement that believes it's not just Christian unity uh, that matters. And maybe you've seen expressions of that. Uh, this new addition believes in the unity of all belief sets. And so whether you're practicing Islam or Judaism or Hinduism, uh, Mormonism, New Ageism, uh, they think we ought to set down all of those belief sets, the specifics of them, and we ought to say, to what, in all, in all these understandings, uh, there are valid pieces of truth. Uh, some will go as far as to say all of these things can be equally true. 
And they would say we're aiming for the same thing. We all want to have fellowship with God. And so it doesn't matter what avenue you take to get there, we'll set the specific beliefs aside that we would come together. It's called interfaith ecumenicalism. All right, let me explain this. All of those ideas, uh, I, I think, are, are in a social construct that believe that unity is the great goal. And if you notice today, we live in a day when people think unity, now that is the great goal. The best thing that you could be is, is unified. And so unity is the great goal. And along with that, that tolerance is the greatest virtue. And so they would say the most virtuous thing you could do is not to tell somebody the truth. That may offend them. The most virtuous thing you could do is to have tolerance and show tolerance to any idea. And so someone comes along and says, you know what, I believe in Islam, and I believe this is how uh, we are to, to respond as humans. And we are coming along as a follower of Jesus Christ, and we say, you know what, I don't believe that, but I don't want to offend you, and I don't want to upset anybody, and so I'm going to be tolerant even to the point of acceptance of other viewpoints. And so all of these come from an idea that unity is the goal and that tolerance is the greatest virtue. It, it goes along to the idea that we accept all ideas. Now, notice that's a growing thing. People talk about truth, and they'll say, my truth, and I've learned about my truth, or you know what, I honor your truth, or we have to be considerate of their truth. And there's all these different ideas of truth. Listen, there's only one truth, and there's only one thing that can be true, and if it is true, then everything else is false. Uh, it, it's along those ideas. Uh, we're not going to declare that we are right. People are afraid to say, I am right. For sure not going to say God's word is right uh, in an effort to have no disagreement. Uh, that is their idea of unity. Not going to upset anybody. Not going to say somebody's wrong. Uh, we're going to have this false sense of unity. Well, the question is, what is our response to that? Uh, here we are in this little old town. Here we are at, at Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, are we to come together with all other churches? Should there just be one church in our town, the Vernon Church? Or are we to come around and to come together and have one denomination, um, even with other religions, that we might have unity? Why don't we just all get together? Maybe you hear folks say that. Why don't we all just come together? All right, this is a tough subject. It is a complex subject. Here's what's important to understand. The world is watching. The world is watching what you do when you come together. Uh, the world's watching what you do for the reasons that you might not come together. Here's the other thing. We want to, for the honor of Christ, uh, we want to do it right. And so what do we do in this age? We want to do the correct thing. And so the question is, what do we do in this age? Let me walk you through some things we ought to do. First thing we need to do, we need to remember the goal. We need to remember the goal. Our goal is not to make somebody happy. Our goal is not to be a big deal in a single denomination. Our goal is not to appease the people of all denominations. Our goal is to be a New Testament follower of Jesus Christ. Keep coming back to that. What's our goal? We want to be a New Testament follower of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing we are to do. We always should defer to Scripture. Listen, I, I don't care what, a, what somebody's creed is. I don't care what somebody's statement is. 
I don't care what somebody's belief set, uh, faith and message is, we should go to Scripture. We take our cues from Scripture. We get our answers from God's Word. So what do we do in this age? Go to the Bible. Go to God's Word. Here's something else we should do. Remember the goal. Defer to Scriptures. Third thing is this. We have to be careful in what we do. Some folks think we ought to be flippant in this. Well, everybody's getting together doing that. We don't want to be left out. Don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Let's just go. We have to be careful. We have to be careful in what we do. We have to be careful in what we say. Uh, we need to try and be, and be smart and thoughtful and evaluate what we're doing. And so we have to be careful. Be careful in what we say. Either way, be careful in what we do. Here, here's the fourth thing. We have to be humble, kind, gracious, and loving to all people at all times. And that's the example of Christ. You know what? There is truth, and we're going to stand on the truth. We're going to point to the truth. We're going to pray for others to also do the same thing. But listen, we have to be humble in the process. We have to be gracious and kind and loving to all people at all times. Here's another one. It's a big deal. We are to be prayerful. What are we doing this age? We are to be prayerful. Now, the Bible says if we need wisdom, ask God for wisdom. We need to pray for wisdom. We need to pray for us as a church. God, lead our church. We need to pray for others. You know what? We ought to pray for other churches, that they stand on the truth, that they have the truth, that they're a beacon for that truth. We have to pray for discernment in how to walk through these days. And then here's, here's the last thing. All of those things necessary, all of those things important, this one equally so. And we have to be prepared to be bold when we need to be. There may be a time to stand by yourself. We have to be prepared to be bold when we need to be. All right? I'm going to give you a real-life example here. And, and this is a real thing. You may have noticed, most folks have, that our community has a ministerial alliance. Uh, out of that ministerial alliance, they do several things together. We do a, a, a coming together for, for benevolence uh, through the USSV. We give through that cause. We, we do that together. Uh, out of that ministerial alliance, we have a community-wide Easter service and a community-wide Thanksgiving service. Uh, I'm sure you have noticed that. I'm also sure that you have noticed uh, at my leading, uh, Calvary Baptist Church, we do not participate in those. Uh, that is greatly talked about. Uh, you may know that at the coffee shops, it's greatly talked about. At least two times a year at Brahms, they spend a week in the morning talking about that church that will not go and the preacher uh, that leads them to do those things. Well, let me, let me explain that to you. And this is just one example, but maybe you can understand as I explain this example. Our goal, listen very carefully, is not unity at the expense of the truth. We're to be unified as far as we can, but it's not unity at the expense of the truth. The goal is unity in the truth. Now, let me tell you about my job. My job as the pastor of this church is to shepherd this church. It is to guide, according to God's word and through God's word, this church. My, my job is to guard the teaching 
that our people will take in and they will hear. It's not for the whole community. It's for this church. It's not for all folks. I would like to, to extend out to them, but it's for this specific church. Well, in these shared pulpit situations, the reality is this. I'm not the only one that gets to preach. And those, those groupings, they come together and they divide it up. Sometimes it's on a rotational basis. But as it is set up, I'm not going to get to be the only one who gets to preach. Uh, some others will get to proclaim their message as well. Well, here's the thing. If they hold different views of the Bible's message, and that's, that's what they do. That's why we have different church groupings. Here's what I have to do. I either have to affirm what they say, uh, sometimes by just being there, we are affirming what they say, or I have to ignore what they say. And I, I've heard folks, and they say things, and say, well, that's not exactly what the Bible says. That's not what I would believe. But you know what? Here we are, and I'm going to have to ignore those things. Or in a couple situations, I would have to, as the shepherd of this church, correct uh, the things that are said. Uh, sometimes folks say, well, we've agreed not to say things that are offensive. Well, listen, what we ought to agree to say is what the Word of God has said. If those things are offensive, they're just going to have to be offensive. And so I would have to affirm what they say, ignore what they say, or correct what they say. Here's what I decided very early on. The way to avoid that is to tell you this. I know what I'll say. And I know what I'll say in this pulpit. I will do the preaching and the teaching for our church. Now, are there other things we're going to cooperate on? Yes. Again, benevolence things. Are we cooperating with them on that? Yes. But, the, but when it comes to the preaching and the intake of the, of the, of the Word of God, uh, I will oversee that for our church. Let me say this. Are we against them? No. Do we pray for them? Yes. Uh, do we hope to have a great time in that event? Yes. If any from our church want to go, can they go? Sure they can. There are some folks that on those nights will say, you know what, we're going to that. And they do. And, and that is fine. But our pulpit, we will use it at every opportunity to say under the leadership of the pastor of the church, thus saith the Lord. Now, let me throw in a second reason, and, and this is just kind of a side deal here. Second reason we do not participate is because of this. People don't go. And let me just explain that to you. I'm going to be very honest with you. No one, no one, uh, there was a time when we ran 200 on Sunday night. Some of you remember that. And very early on, our church would be full, and I'd say, we're going to go to the community-wide service, and we would go, and 18 people from our church would show up. And so when I announced we're going to the community-wide service, people would say, Whoo, I'm getting my barbecue grill out tonight. Or I've got a Dallas Cowboys shirt, and I'm getting it on tonight, and people did not attend. What do we do in this ecumenical age? It's a tough situation. We are kind to all people, gracious to all people, humble in the process, prayerful about the whole situation. We go back to the Word of God, and we are prepared to stand on the Word of God even if we stand alone. There can be no unity outside of the truth the truth is what it is that unifies us. All right, that's the second thing tonight. Third thing is this. All right, we're going to start to get it, to getting into really some heavier things or some weightier things with this third thing. The third thing tonight, and this is really opening up 
a discussion that's going to run for, for several episodes. The third thing tonight is this. What is the original distinction of a Baptist? Um, we're in a few weeks going to look at Baptist distinctives. Now, there's, there's quite a list of those. We're going to spend some time, what do Baptists believe about this? What do Baptists believe about those things? We're going to look at Baptist distinctives, but the question tonight is this. What was the original issue that leads to the formation or the grouping of Baptists? What was the original subject? What was the original issue that starts to separate this group that we now call Baptists? Now, this issue, call them out of other churches, call them out of other groupings, uh, for sure caused them to stand alone. What is this one issue, right? As you're sitting there, you may guess it's the subject of baptism. What is the original issue, the original distinction that causes these folks to start to pull away and to group up and become what we would call Baptists today? As you guess, it's the subject of baptism. Now, uh, later on, we're going to be very specific on the subject of baptism. We're going to look deeply and clearly uh, at the issue of baptism, but tonight we're going to start right here. Let me, let me try to run you through this. By A.D. 160, we start to find recorded the practice of infant baptism in the church. Now, by A.D. 160, we start to find the practice of infant baptism in the church. Now remember this, most people believe that Jesus died around A.D. 30 through 36, depending on whose calendar, some say A.D. 33, depending on whose calendar that you use. Most people believe the Apostle Paul uh, was beheaded in 64 or 65 A.D., again, depending on whose calendar you use. Uh, most people believe that the Apostle John, uh, he died in A.D. 99. And so understand, it's not far after the life of Christ. It's not far after the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. For sure, it's not that far from the ministry of the Apostle John that this starts to show up. By AD 60, we start to find the practice of infant baptism in the church. By 200 AD, there are more references to it in church history. So by 200 AD, you start to see more references to it. By 300 AD, it seems to be the common practice for those practicing uh, Christianity. Uh, most likely at this point, the majority of people uh, following Christ or attempting to follow Christ, they are practicing infant baptism. Now, let me explain this a very quick uh, overview. Let me explain the reason behind that. The reason for that was the idea that is called original sin. It is the teaching that not only is the nature to sin inherited by humans, by people, not only is the disposition to sin, now we get that from Adam, we have a fallen nature, not only is the nature to sin, the disposition to sin inherited, but it is the idea that also inherited from Adam is the guilt of sin. Adam sinned, and because of Adam's sin, we are born guilty of sin. That is, that is the idea. 
Augustine, he was a philosopher, he was a theologian. He and others, they teach this. They taught this. Uh, it takes hold and it actually shapes uh, Christian thought. Today, the Christian world, the Christian church, uh, whatever expression that takes, uh, has been heavily influenced by their teaching. Uh, when you're born, you have with you the guilt of Adam's sin. And so here's the outflow of that. So if a child dies, if a two-year-old dies, a four-year-old dies, if an infant dies, if a newborn dies, if a pre-born baby dies, if one of those are your family member, if they die, they are guilty of the sin of Adam, and so they must suffer the consequence from sin, uh, they are going to hell. And that, that, is, that is the outflow of this teaching. Well, the way to make sure that didn't happen, now that doesn't sit well with folks, that, that doesn't seem right, rightly so to folks. So the way to make sure that doesn't happen, the way to make sure they go to heaven was to baptize them as an infant because they believed that it broke the spell of sin off of them, that it broke the curse of sin off of them. The Catholic Church, in fact, most denominations, many denominations still embrace this teaching. Uh, the Catholic Church, this is off one of their recent posts, uh, it states, through baptism, they are freed from original sin and placed in the church with access to the fullness of the means of salvation. And what that means, according to Catholic belief, you are saved through baptism. You're saved through church membership. And so that's the idea. Uh, if they die with the guilt of Adam, uh, they're going to go to hell. We don't want to see that happen. So we'll baptize them as an infant to remove the curse of sin off of them. Those who supported it then and those who support it now, here's some of the things they cite. First thing is this. They cite an idea that baptism is the new circumcision. They go back to the Old Testament. Uh, that was performed in the Old Testament on the eighth day. And so they teach that baptism has replaced circumcision, so it was done on, it is done on the eighth day. Uh, others, and, and some of the same ones, cite the biblical account of Cornelius with Peter and the Roman jailer with Paul. And remember in those accounts, it says they got saved, and then they were baptized, and their whole households with them. And so they would come and say, you know what? They got saved. They went home and the whole household, they were also baptized. They believe that includes infants. Uh, these folks also say the, the Bible is silent on it. The Bible doesn't talk about it because it was the practice of the apostles. And so when we go to scripture, it doesn't tell us about it because it was the generally accepted and practiced thing going all the way back to the apostles. All right, so understand this. The original distinction, the first issue that becomes a dividing line is the baptism of infants. And for those that will end up in the grouping called Baptists, it is the rejection of infant baptism. Let me tell you some things about this. First off, nowhere does Scripture call for, command, the replacing of circumcision with baptism. That is not scriptural. That's not in the Bible. It doesn't tell us uh, we've, we've gone through this era and now this is replaced. That's not in the Bible. Second thing, in the New Testament, 
when it refers to the household, uh, it would have included those living in the care of the head of the household, even the servants belonging to the head of the household. But if you notice in Scripture, it never gives an age. Uh, nowhere does it say that it includes or excludes minors or infants. It's not said. So when it says the household, we're not sure if that included minors or infants or if it, if it did include them. Now, there's a reason for that, and that goes to this. The reason is the third thing, and that is this. The Bible is silent on it, and the reason it never tells us what to do with this issue of guilt at birth, the reason the Bible never tells us about infant baptism is because, listen very carefully, the Bible never taught it. Jesus never taught it. The apostles knew how we are saved. The apostles knew when we are saved. The apostles knew and they taught when we should be baptized. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Here comes the apostle Paul, and he goes on these missionary journeys. He goes to a town, and he is intent, urgent, on preaching the message of Christ. He's willing to die for the message. He is beaten for proclaiming the message. I want you to notice, go read the book of Acts. We've, we've taught through it. He never comes into a town and says, you know what, here's some things you need to do. You need to recognize your sin. You need to trust Christ for your salvation. He never says, and you need to baptize your infants to save them from sin. You know why he never teaches that? It's not the issue. So, so if it was the issue, he would have come and said, let me tell you the first thing we need to do. We need to get up here and baptize all the kids in the town. It's not the message, and he's intent on the message because it wasn't the issue. I want, I want to point this out. Remember our study on Calvinism. How many of their beliefs are developed fighting issues that do not exist? And that's one of the things that, that I became aware of as I taught through that. A whole lot of the things that they are, are, are talking about are defending and promoting. Those issues are developed fighting issues that do not exist. And so you go back, remember the study? You believe in total depravity. You believe in total depravity, and so guess what you have to believe in? You have to believe in irresistible grace. You can't be saved if there's not irresistible grace. And so you got to start thinking about irresistible grace, and you got to make it a stand on that. And you believe in irresistible grace, and so guess what you got to believe in? you got to believe in limited atonement. Irresistible grace, he chooses some, gives them the ability to believe, there's going to be some folks he doesn't give the ability to believe. You know what? They're not going to be saved. Limited atonement, he didn't die for everybody. He hasn't paid for everybody's sin. You start to believe limited atonement, guess what you got to start to believe in? Unconditional election. You got to go save from the foundation of the world. It was already chosen. And that, 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 is, that was God's business, not ours. And so this, this fault in the foundation shows up all the way through. And I believe that's where they get in the mess that they're in. A fault in the foundation goes all the way through. Well, I want you to get this. It's the same with infant baptism. Infant baptism, I want you to think about this. It means we're saved through baptism, doesn't it? You, you baptize somebody, the sin curse is broken off of them. The, the, the guilt is removed from them. The curse of sin is broken, or maybe it's delayed. I don't know about that. 
But that's what it teaches. It's, it's through baptism. We got to rush and get it done. Oh, they, they, we can't let them pass away until it's done. That's the outflow of it, isn't it? So you have to start defending something that's not an issue. Here's the deal. A person is guilty of sin when they knowingly choose to sin. That's the deal. A person is guilty of sin when they knowingly choose to sin. An infant, a baby is not guilty of sin. They did not choose volitionally, intelligently to enter in to sin. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 says this. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And so here's the deal. A person is guilty of sin when they knowingly choose to sin. Here's the second part of that. And the remedy for sin, what's the gospel message? It is faith in the Savior for sin, Jesus. Do you know that's what it teaches all the way through Scripture? The remedy for sin is not any work of man. It doesn't say baptize. It doesn't say baptize your infants. That's not in Scripture. The remedy for sin is faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. How are we saved? By faith in Jesus alone. As early as 200 A.D., there are some rejecting or questioning the practice of infant baptism. So we see it's taking hold. We also see as early as 200, there are some folks rejecting or questioning the practice of infant baptism. Now, there was another philosopher, Christian apologist, Tertullian, uh, Tertullian, a Christian thinker. He writes in 200 AD. Um, he writes that he is against infant baptism. Here's what he noticed. I'm going to read this. It's kind of weird. He noticed that those infants who were baptized did not stop sinning. I wonder how long it took him to figure that out. <laughs> Those that are baptized did not stop sinning. And so here's what he was scared. This Tortellian said this. He's scared that they may trust in their baptism and feel at ease in their sinning. And so he says, I've noticed those, those folks baptized, they're still sinning. And, and the fact that they're still sinning, they may say, well, I've been baptized. And they may take comfort and peace in that and feel at ease with their sinning. Others were questioning the practice as well. In 1500, there's a group called the Anabaptists. Um, they are questioning Martin Luther and John Calvin out of the Reformation concerning infant baptism. This group says they disagree with infant baptism. Here's what they taught. They taught, they declared, baptism is only valid when the candidate freely confesses their faith in Christ, themselves requesting baptism. Baptism is only valid when the candidate freely confesses their faith in Christ, themselves requesting baptism. Anna is a, is a Greek word that means another or again. And so a person was baptized as an infant. They would say that's not what the New Testament teaches. When they put their faith in Jesus, when they understood that, then they themselves requested another baptism. Another group, they were led by a guy named John Smith. He was an Anglican. He was in London. Here's what he committed. He committed to reading his Bible every day. And so upon reading his Bible every day and then hearing of the Anabaptist stance on baptism, 
and comparing the two, in 1607, he split away, and for the very first time, they took the name Baptist. A guy named Thomas Helwy joined with him, and the practice was now named in what we call believer's baptism. A confessional baptism where you say, I believe in Christ. I've trusted him as my Lord and Savior. This is not part of my salvation, but a testimony to it. Believer's baptism. And so here we are. We're about to wrap up. The first issue, the first dividing line was a rejection of infant baptism, which becomes then the practice of believer's baptism. One quick question. We're going to be done. Quick question is this. Does it matter? Does it matter? I think we've been trained to say, well, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to talk about that. Does it matter? I want you just to think about something. Is it to say something else, to say that you have to be baptized to be saved, to break a sin curse, isn't that to change what we understand about the gospel? If we overlook it, if we endorse it, aren't we actually inciting confusion about how we are saved and when we are saved and even what we are guilty of. Doesn't a problem here become an issue somewhere else? All right, so those are the questions, and then go back to this. So what's the goal? The goal is to follow Jesus as prescribed in the Word of God, the Bible. In the Word of God, the Bible, in the New Testament, there's one form of baptism. It is believer's baptism, it's not by sprinkling, it's by full immersion after the point that a person is saved, not as part of their salvation. That is what is prescribed to us in Scripture. What about those that come to different conclusions? Hey, we're going to be kind to them. Hey, we're going to pray that they see the truth. We're going to be gracious to them. Our goal is to practice our relationship with Christ as prescribed by the Word of God, the Bible. That's where we're going to stop tonight. I want to ask if you'll stand, please. Let's pray. During Father, we come. We're thankful for uh, your truth, the Word of God. I pray, Lord, that we would read it, uh, that we would digest it, that we would consume it, that we would consider it, and I pray that we'd be shaped by it. And I pray, Lord, we wouldn't take a preacher's word for it, a denomination's word for it, a church's word for it. But I pray as we hear your word that we will be hungry for the truth, that we would consider it, study it, evaluate it ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that's, that would be how we walk, how we talk, how we do business, how we go to school, uh, how we interact with others, how we relate to you, prescribed by your word. Lord, help us in that effort. Lord, we come today and we tell you we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for the great things we saw in it. We're thankful for your word that we heard tonight, today. I pray, Lord, as we go into a new week that we will go and we will carry the truth, whether the world hates it or not, that we'll stand on your truth, that it will be pleasing in your sight. Lord, I pray for those in our church, again, dealing with hard things. Bless them, encourage them. And I pray that together until you come again, that we'll be faithful as we carry the good news of a risen Savior. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you, we exalt you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.